Last week we started this series of messages called Jesus Tweets. And some of you are on Twitter, some of you are not. Some of you love Twitter, some of you don't have a clue what it is and you don't care. But here's the point. Some of Jesus' greatest teaching, some of His greatest words were said in less than 140 characters. And on Twitter, that's all you have. For each tweet you send out, you only have 140 characters. And Jesus knew that a well-constructed sentence could have more impact than an entire hour-long sermon. Some of you were like, Brother Lyle, you could you, you just give us a sentence and we'll go, all right? But our goal is, over the next few weeks, is to download some of these saying some of these brief things. And last week we started with the one where he looks at sisters who are waiting for him to do something, who thought he would do something about their brother that was sick and dying. And Jesus let him die and waited a couple of days and comes to him and says, I am the resurrection and the life. We talked about the impact of that one statement, not only in that moment when Lazarus comes forth, but also just in the general understanding of the resurrection and the life and what that means for us as believers today. Today we're going to look at a new one in just a minute, but I was thinking about this this week, that one of the most versatile words in the English language is the word take. And I, I had somebody online that did this, but they talked about all the ways we use the word take. For instance, we say take a seat, take a hike, take a ride, take a bus, take a drain, take a cab, take a flight, take a break, take a message, take a letter, take a hint, take a bite, take a bow, take a punch, take a nap, take a shower, please. Take a second, take a minute, take a movement, moment, take it all in, take a number, take one. Take two. Take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Take it to the bank. Take it to the street. Take it to the limit. One more time. Some Eagles fans out there, all right? Take it back. No, you take it back. No, you take it back. Take it outside. Take it easy. Take it hard. Take out alone. Take out the trash. Take out the dog. Take out your frustrations. Take out your girlfriend. Take out your tonsils. Take a walk. Take a job. Take a trip. Take a vacation. Take your Visa card because they don't take American Express. Take my place. Take your place. Take my turn. Take your turn. Take his turn. Take her turn. Do you take this woman? Do you take this man? Take a picture. Take a piece of cake. Take a honeymoon. Take a lifetime. Don't take it for granted. Take a pencil. Take your test. Take the 10th grade. Again. Take the car, take the keys, take the long way, take the high road, take the shortcut, take the left, take a right, take a drink, take a pub, take a life, take your life. Take it seriously, please. Take a load off, take the hat off, take your shoes off, take your coat off and stay a while. But perhaps the best use of take that has ever been said is take up your mat and walk. That's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus says 140 characters or less, looks at a man and says, pick up your mat, take up your mat and walk. And here's the question. I want to ask you a question now. I'm going to give you my answer later, but I want you to think about it. Now, don't think about it so hard you don't hear anything else. Because some of you are thinkers, I know. The story today is Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed and telling him to get up and walk. But here's the question I have for you. Why did he tell him to take the mat? Did he need it anymore? So why did he need to take it? We'll talk about it in a minute. 
Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Swear, if you don't have a Bible with you, words are going to be up, or I think they're going to be up on the screen. Verse 17. On one of those days, while he was teaching. Now, just to give you an idea of where this is, this is early on in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, these are some of the first teaching moments he has, to the point that people aren't even really that mad with him yet. He hasn't said enough to get them mad, although this story gets them pretty mad. While he was there, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law. This is the first time that this group of people, either one of these groups of people, is mentioned in the book of Luke. So as a result, we have to understand that this is an important moment. This is the first time that they're there. This is the first time that they've come to investigate Jesus. And what's happening is they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, okay, who is this guy? Back around the time of Jesus, there were lots of people that began to claim that they were the promised Messiah. That they were the one that had been promised by God to deliver these people. The Jewish people were living under the rule of the Roman government. And all these guys would come out and they would claim to be the Messiah. God's son, son of God, son of man. They would claim all these titles. And any time that started to happen, the religious leaders of the day began to go investigate, is this person who they say they are. We have criteria, we have ideas, let's see if they match it. And so I think what's happening here is Jesus has started to create enough buzz that the first kind of investigation is happening. And I really don't believe, and this is one of those things that's not uh, just right there in the text, I really don't believe at this moment when they first get there and hear him teaching that they are necessarily negative against him. They're probably suspicious, they probably are cynical, but I don't think they're mad. They're just there to listen. Pharisees were a group of people that took it upon themselves to make sure they told everybody else how to keep the law. That that sounds worse than what they would have thought it would be. Because they really just said, listen, if God's laid down these rules, we need to figure out how to follow them, and this is how you do it. The, The teachers of the law were people that would have had authority. They would have not only known what the law said, but they would have had authority in courts and in decisions. So they're there listening. People coming from all around, from all over the area, and also Jerusalem. So just everywhere around. They're in this place called Capernaum, and everywhere around people are coming. And then there's this little kind of throwaway line. It's not a throwaway line, but it could almost be read that way if you're not paying attention. It says, and the Lord's power to heal was in him. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes Jesus could heal and sometimes Jesus couldn't. What it means is, this is the moment when the electricity of the crowd started to notice that Jesus was different. You ever been somewhere when it just feels different? There's electricity in the air. There's something that's just different about the atmosphere. Maybe it's a sporting event or a concert or a worship service or somewhere you've been. They're just You say things like it just feels electric. Jesus was there and it was different. This isn't like all the other guys. The next verse tells us, kind of sets the scene from him. Just then some men came, carrying on a mat a man who was paralyzed. All right? What does it mean to be paralyzed? Can't move. All right? Can't walk. So to get anywhere, somebody has to help you. You realize this is a day before they had methods of allowing people that are paralyzed to get around, to move. 
And so if you wanted to move, you had to depend on other people to move. And so these guys think to themselves, I, we've got our paralyzed friend. We, 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 we know that Jesus is in the area. What are they expecting to happen when they bring the paralyzed man to Jesus? What are they expecting? No paralyzed, right? We expect them to be healed. So they tried to bring him in and they set him down before him. That's what they wanted, but they couldn't get there. What's the problem? It's too crowded. It's too many people here. They get there. Now, you have to understand, in their day and time, the house would have been very open. It would have been uh, something that people could have listened to from outside. Jesus wouldn't have been in an enclosed space. It would have been an open kind of area. and People could hear him. They would have crowded around. And whatever else was going on, so many people were crowding in to see Jesus that they could not get this guy in. And you have to understand, too, you're talking about a, a production. You're not talking about one person kind of squeezing through the crowd, right? It's not like when you're at... Disney World and your, hypothetically, six-year-old squeezes through the crowd in front of you. And you're trying to chase after them and not get punched for knocking people over, all right? It's a, it's a, they're carrying them on the mat. So they can't get in. So what's, I mean, you know the story. What's the solution? Where do they go? They go to the roof. Now, we have to get a different understanding of roofs than our own day because in our own day, the roofs are not a place people hang out. In their day, they did. The roof would have been flat, and there would have been a ladder on the side of the house probably, or even stairs up to it. And People would go up there and hang out. It would have been thick enough that they could sit up there. In fact, it was so thick, and they put so much stuff up there that occasionally grass would grow on their roofs. It was like a whole ecosystem up there. And as they're up there on the roof and they're sitting there, they would just they'd place a, they'd go there in the middle of the day to get the breeze of the, of the sky coming. Or if it was a cool day, to get the sun glowing on their face. They, they would go and just hang out up there. And so these guys think, we've got to get to the roof. And I want you to think about this just for a moment. Because I don't think we think of the logistics sometimes. That's not easy. i got a guy on a mat that's paralyzed. And they've got to go up a set of stairs or a ladder to get to the roof. They went onto the roof, dug through whatever was there, tiles is what it says here, or mud-baked stuff. They dug through. And as they dig a hole, again, a hole large enough to drop a human being through, they put him down before Jesus. A lot of times when you preach this passage of Scripture, when you think about this passage of Scripture, these friends get the attention. Because, man, those are some friends, right? I mean, they're a little crazy. Now, I'd ask you how many of you have some friends that are a little crazy in here, but I don't want any issues happening when the person next to you raises their hand, all right? It's like the person used to say, uh, if you get on a bus and there's nobody a little off on the bus, then it's probably you, because there's one on every bus. So if you don't have any crazy friends, guess what? It's probably you, all right? These guys are nuts. I mean, they're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going to happen. We're, we're going to get him to Jesus. It doesn't matter what it takes. It doesn't matter that we don't know this stranger, or maybe we do, and we don't care. It's his roof. We're tearing it apart. We're not asking permission. We're not putting in a request. Hey, could y'all let us get through? Like, we're doing whatever it takes for this guy to get to Jesus. Now, here's my hope. My hope is that you've got people in your life that are like that for you. They'll go to battle for you. That will do whatever it takes for you. That you've got people in your life when life doesn't turn out. 
that are there with you, that are walking with you, that are helping you, that are taking you to the place. My fear is that we live in a society where there are fewer and fewer and fewer of those relationships. Studies out there all over the place say we are the most connected, most communicating generation that has ever existed in the history of the world. And from all they can tell, we are also the loneliest generation that has ever existed in the history of the world. We don't have these kind of friendships. We don't have these kind of deep, abiding friendships. Now, I know you're reading a lot into four guys on a mat, but the truth is it's not just the guys on a mat and these guys are carrying him and they drop him before Jesus. Nobody in town would have wanted to be around this guy because in their day to be paralyzed meant that you had done something bad and God is punishing you. And so to hang out with him was to give acceptance to what he had done or to say, I'm going to be a sinner like him. And so to hang out with him was just morally wrong. And these four guys don't care. We don't care. And here's another thing that you have to think about this passage. You don't get four friends like that unless you are a friend like that. A lot never gets said about this paralyzed guy, okay? But there had to be something about him that these guys care deeply about. And the reason a lot of us don't have friendships that are as deep as this guy with these four people is because we don't take the time to invest or we're scared. What if we open ourselves up and we get hurt? Or we got hurt in a previous relationship and we're like, I can't do that again. We don't put the time into it. We don't put the effort into it. We don't become vulnerable with other people. We like to keep everything together. I had lunch this week with one of my best friends. Guy that I've known since I was three or four years old. And he's working a new job, and I hadn't seen where he was working. And we made an arrangement, and I went down and saw where he was working, and we went to lunch. And we're sitting across the table, and he's telling me about this men's Bible study he's in. He said, uh, "He said, you know what's strange is." We, we sit in there and we talk about we need these deeper friendships. We need these deeper friendships. And what causes these deeper friendships? What happens with these deeper friendships? And he said, we were doing that and we were going to lunch today, Lyle. And he said, I thought to myself, Lyle and I have such a great relationship because we spent 20 years in close contact, talking to each other all the time, building that trust relationship. And it was time and effort for years. And yet we're not willing to put that kind of effort and time into new things to build those kind of relationships. In the words of Yogi Berra, if you don't go to somebody's funeral, they're not going to come to yours. Some of you will get that about lunchtime, right? We're going to invest in it. We see these guys, amazing friendship, but that's not what impresses Jesus. Jesus isn't impressed with their friendship. That's not what the next verse says, is it? It says, seeing their faith. What kind of faith? This kind of faith. That we'll tear open a roof on a house because if we get our friend in front of Jesus, he's going to be made well. That's faith. We're going to risk our own reputations. We're going to risk our own safety. We're going to risk financial problems. We're going to sacrifice because we know if we get him in front of Jesus, everything's going to be off. So Jesus sees their faith and he says, 
friend, your sins are forgiven. And the four guys on the roof are like, and? Is that why they dropped him down? No, I'll give you a hint because y'all aren't answering. Is that why they dropped him down? No, what they want? They wanted him to walk. You know, it's interesting. We've done this, ser- this series for two weeks, and in both weeks, the people that are interacting with Jesus think they know exactly what needs to happen, and Jesus knows what really needs to happen. Mary and Martha last week, Jesus, if you would have just been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus, it says, was glad that he died so that he could prove the power that God had given him. He comes to these guys, and they don't complain about it. We don't see him complain. But you know, you just spent a long time digging out somewhere to put this guy in front of Jesus, and you put him in front of Jesus. You're high-fiving on the roof. He's there. He's there. It's going to happen. And Jesus goes, your sins are forgiven. It's amazing. Now, the reality is, sins being forgiven is always the deeper need. It doesn't matter how many times you're healed physically. If Jesus hasn't forgiven your sins, eventually you're going to die and you're going to spend eternity separated from Him. That's reality. Jesus looks at him and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And now the Pharisees and the scribes that are there, that have been listening to this, that have been thinking about this, that have been on discussions about this, suddenly their mind turned to, Now we're mad. That's not acceptable. I mean, he was okay. He was saying some things we didn't agree with, but now he stepped over the line. They start to think this in their mind. Now, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Only God can forgive sins. And they're thinking this in their mind. They're they're contemplating in their mind. They, They have this idea. The Messiah is going to be this and this. He's going to lead our people. He's going to deliver us from captivity. But he is not going to be God because there is one God, and this man is not God. And only God can forgive sins. And how in the world is he able to say that? What does he mean? your sins are forgiven. That is blasphemy against the Most High God. There is no way that this can stand. And they're boiling inside. You ever been there? Like it just, you think about it and you think about it and you think about it and you go to bed at night and everything's good. You wake up in the morning apparently you've been thinking about it all night because it's all there again. Well, they don't have that long because Jesus says, what are you thinking about? fact, the next verse, Jesus looks at him and says, I know what you're thinking. And Here's the thing I want to say about that, alright? How did Jesus know what they were thinking? Well, here's how he knew what they were thinking. He knew when he said your sins are forgiven that they were going to get fired up about that. He could see it on their faces. Now, I'm not taking away anything about the divinity of Jesus, but I'm telling you when he says your sins are forgiven, he knows the reaction is going to be what? And plus, when you're a speaker, you see when you say something that people are like, I don't believe that. I see it in you sometimes. The facial contortions, the, what did he, the leaning over, did he, what did he say? He didn't say that. Jesus knows they're saying, he says, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you? Or to say get up and walk? You know what a rhetorical question is? You know what that is? It's a question that doesn't need an answer, right? Jesus isn't asking them to actually answer that question. I I read this week, one scholar wrote about ten pages on trying to answer that question. And I thought when I got through with it, I wasted my time because 
Jesus didn't intend for it to be answered. The answer is, which is harder? Yes. Neither of those is possible outside of God. Amen? It's not possible outside of God. So it's not which one. And he didn't intend for them to get debate. Well, I mean, the get up and walk, that's really hard. But the forgiveness of sins, what about that? One's visible and one's invisible. He didn't want all that discussion. He just wants them to go, yes, only God can do both of those things. But then he looks at him and he says, so you'll know that I have authority to forgive sins, which is the ultimate need. I want you to see something. And he tells the guy, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Take your mat, pick it up, go home. I love what happens in the next verse. Immediately. When? Immediately. He got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Wouldn't you? Everyone was astounded. They were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. You could call that the understatement of the year. Right? I mean, I've never been preaching somewhere where someone's been lowered through the roof. Never seen a guy that was paralyzed immediately have words spoken and get up. Never seen a showdown between God Himself and the people that are trying to enforce the laws that God has set up. Never seen that happen. But in the midst of them, Jesus does something amazing. So here's the question. Why didn't tell him to take the mat? Why didn't he just say, get up, go? I mean, there are other places in Scripture where he tells people to get up and go or to rise up, but he doesn't tell them something like, take your mat. He just says, rise and walk. So why did he want him to take the mat? Now, here's my answer. It's because he wanted it to be a reminder to him of the amazing things that God had done in his life. He'd go home, hang that mat on the wall, and when he looked at that mat, all he could think about is Jesus. He sat there and he looked at what he used to be, who he used to be a part of, what he used to act like, what his life was before Jesus, and he could look at that mat and he could say, I once was paralyzed, but now I'll walk. He's like the man that was born blind that goes to the people and he says, what did Jesus do? How did he heal you? And he says, I don't have a clue how he healed me. I don't know where he came from. What I can tell you is I was blind and now... I see. The mat is a reminder to me. He's got kids around. He's got grandkids. And he says, let me tell you about the mat. Let me tell you what happened the day I met Jesus. I have these four amazing friends. I hope you've got friends like that. i got four amazing friends, and they took me, and I got there. And Jesus looked at me, and before he ever healed my body, he healed my soul. And I have followed him every day since. Now, here's the truth. We've all got mats. We've all got a past. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're someone that has been freed from that mat. And Jesus has said to you, take up your mat and walk. It's not to forget the past, but it's to be a reminder of the past that what God has done in our lives and the grace He has shown us is more than we can ask or imagine. And we are to glorify Him as we walk through our day because He's taken us off the mat. 
Maybe your mat is legalism or a a, a bad church experience or or maybe it's guilty because of a life you lived or it's an addiction that happened or it's a relationship that broke. In the midst of that, Jesus has called you to come and maybe you're still on your mat. Maybe you haven't gotten up yet and you're needing people to bring you to Jesus and you're here and Jesus is saying, it's time, it's time. Take up your mat and walk. It's over. Follow me. And maybe you just need to be reminded of what your mat was because you've been living this life so long you forgot how far God has brought you. See, he didn't want him to take up the mat just because Jesus needed him to clean the room up, okay? It wasn't like, hey, get that out of here. We don't need that around anymore. In fact, it would have been a pretty powerful teaching moment for him to look at the scribes and Pharisees and say, look at the mat, it's still here. The God's gone. But he wants him to remember the place from where Jesus has brought him. Let me tell you this. You may be here today and you may still be on that mat. And you say, you don't understand what's holding me back from following Jesus. And you're right, I don't. But I know this, it doesn't matter. The point of this is that Jesus has power over all life and over all sin. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with or what you've been dealing with. That He wants to take you to a new place told this story before, but it just fits today. Several years ago, I had the honor of being a camp pastor for Center Kid Camps, or not Center Kid, actually, it was before Center Kid, it was Cross Point, it was a sports camp that worked for kids. And I loved it. I got to preach five nights a week to third through sixth graders, and some of you say, now that is a nightmare, that is not preaching and kids together. But I loved it. I loved the opportunity to do that. One of the best summers of my life. God worked in, in amazing ways. But one of the things that happened to us early on is we were a traveling team. And so um, we, our first week was at Georgetown College in Kentucky. Our second week was in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. The third week we didn't have camp make at Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. So we drove to Grand Isle, Louisiana. The fourth week we drove to the middle of Texas. I mean dead center of Texas in Summer is fun, right? And then we were there two weeks, and after two weeks, we packed up and in one night drove from central Texas to Marion, Alabama, which is south of Birmingham. We weren't supposed to. We were supposed to stop, but it was 4th of July weekend and no rooms were ever available, so we just drove the whole way. And so during that summer, we didn't get a chance on the weekends to do anything but pack up a budget truck and go across country. When we got to Marion, Alabama, we were there for six weeks. And so the first week, um, we were free. And my roommate, who was my roommate the whole summer, said, hey, we're going to church today. I said, great. I said, I'll let you pick. And so he was a Methodist. Yeah, I work in a Baptist camp. And we went to a Methodist church, and it was a nice experience. But I told him, listen, we're at a Baptist camp. We can't go to Methodist churches all summer. We're going to Baptist church this Sunday. So I picked the church the next week, and I picked a church, just looked up in, their, in the yellow pages. Anybody remember what those things are? Y'all remember those yellow pages? Berean Baptist Church, great church. I'm going to go, we're going to go to Berean Baptist Church. It was the closest Baptist church to us. We went to Berean Baptist Church, and it was a family church. You know what a family church is? Like everybody was family in the church. It was also uh, at that moment uh, until... Now, now listen, I, I, I'm a white dude, all right? But the guy that was with me was from Kentucky, a red-headed Kentucky named Kenny McKinney. 
you don't get more white than that. All right? We did not. We didn't know it wasn't a big deal to us, but we walked in. It was an African American congregation, and when we walked in and sat down, we started worship. They had the moment, you know, the visitor moment, and said, "If anybody here is a guest of ours today, every head in the place turned to Lyle Larson and Kenny McKinney." We had a great time, great experience, great worship. Pastor got up and preached, and he preached on uh, the Apostle Paul. I mean, it, you know, it was a good sermon. I, I still remember. This is nineteen ninety-seven. A long time ago, all right? 1997, I still remember the sermon. He talked about Paul and Paul's testimony. And if you look in the book of Acts, when Paul gets in front of people, he tells his testimony. He tells his Matt story. This is who I was. This is what I was like. And then Jesus showed up and changed me. And now I'm here today to you preaching Jesus died, crucified, resurrected. He did that over and over and over again. And so he talked about Paul and said, he read the passages and said, Paul just told his testimony. And then he did this amazing thing. He went from Genesis all the way to Revelation, talking about the testimonies of the Bible. He talked about Abraham's testimony, and Moses' testimony, Daniel's testimony, and Joshua's testimony, and David's testimony, and Ezekiel's testimony, and John's testimony, and Peter's testimony, Stephen's testimony. He went from Genesis to Revelation talking about their testimony and what was there. And he got to Revelation, and he said, one day Jesus is coming back, and glory, hallelujah, we're going to see him. And he sat down. Well, I'm a good Baptist. When the preacher sits down, you get your stuff together. Because it's time to go home, right? Some of you don't wait till the preacher sits down. You just, you got your stuff together right now. Like, he, he moved the stool back. That means we're almost done. Let me get my stuff together. Some of you are guilty of that right now. So he sits back down, music guy gets up, starts to play. Starts the invitation hymn. I think, all right, we're good. We're good. Man, that's a great sermon. You know, just thinking about it, that's really good. Like, how in the world can I preach that at, Cent- at this cross point camp? You know, I'm, I'm thinking all that stuff. And about the time the music guy is getting ready to say the first words of the song, to sing the first words, all of a sudden you hear, wait. And. It's coming from the pastor sitting over here in a chair. And the associate at this point is fanning him. What? I'm, I, don't, I'm a, I don't have a clue what's going on here. We don't do this in the church, First Baptist, Dyersburg. Nothing unexpected ever happens, right? If the Holy Spirit showed up, we were going to question him, right? That's a half a joke. What is, what's going on? What's happening? Wait a minute. I ain't done yet. So everything stops. Now I'll never forget, he was sitting about this place. He walked to the center of the platform. And he said, There's some amazing testimonies in the Bible. We've talked about a lot of them today, and there are more I didn't even get to. He said, but let me tell you one thing. And then he did something I did not expect. About that time, he looked at us, and he scanned the room. He said, let me tell you one thing. One thing. And about that time, the music started up again. Which, anytime you want to do that, Jeff, not now, but to start playing underneath my preaching, right? And about that time, he kind of
kind of went like this. And I thought, what's he doing? And he ran and he jumped right here, got right here, right there. They're okay, they're young. And he said, ain't nobody got a testimony like mine. And for the next five minutes, he told us about his salvation from Jesus Christ. He told us his mad story. And let me tell you something, people. There's some amazing stories in Scripture. I've heard some amazing testimonies. But ain't nobody got testimonies like I do. And ain't nobody got your story either. And the reason that the mat was told to take up and go is because we're to carry the story of the salvation of Jesus Christ in our life with us wherever we go. What's your story? Where's your mat? What did Christ save you from? And some of you here today, has He saved you at all? Or is it time to pick it up and head home? Let's pray together.